I'm your host Helen Douthwaite Teasdale and welcome to Brass Evolution, a show where we explore the rich culture and history of the brass banding world. This episode I'm chatting to David Hurst about the origins of probably the most famous brass band in the world, the Black Dyke Band. So welcome, David, to the podcast. For those who don't know you, could you give us a little introduction to yourself? I started playing um, the cornet at the age of nine, ten in my local village band, Home Silver Band, who unfortunately no longer exists. Uh, when I was 14, I uh, was invited to join the Yorkshire Imperial Metals Band with uh, Trevor Worms, the conductor, who became a great friend of mine. I joined on the front row and went on the Repiano Cornet. Uh, and then two years later, Jim Shepherd asked me to go up and audition at Black Dyke for the third cornet position, which I went up to, made a complete mess of it. Um, then at the interval, Jim says, do you fancy a go on soprano? So, uh, so I said, yeah, go on, I'll, I'll, have a, I'll have a blonde soprano. So I did so, and uh, the band said, come back next week and have another go on soprano so i came back for another i think another two weeks after that and then they said um we'll uh we'll, we'll sign you on as soprano cornet players and i was 16 years old at the time so i had some fantastic times with black dyke at that point when jim decided to leave in 74 i joined versatile brass for a while uh, and then I, uh, because I was having tuition at Huddersfield University with Maurice Murphy and Ian Cool, respectively then, of the BBC Northern Symphony Orchestra, uh, I started to do quite a lot of trumpet playing and specialised in D trumpet uh, and obviously B flat trumpet as well and, and spent a few years doing shows and things like that. Joined Brighouse uh, for a short period and joined Black Dyke again in 1978 um, did the Europeans and the Nationals with them and then I thought well I'm going to go conducting so I started conducting the local village band and gradually worked myself into the higher echelons became conductor of a few bands then I started conducting Yorkshire Imperial for a while uh, went to uh, Black Dyke as resident conductor for two years and joined, uh, joined Brighouse and I was there for just just around 11 years and uh, did a lot of great things with Brighouse. Uh, some wonderful people there, uh, still some wonderful people, uh, and the same at Black Dyke. And uh, I did quite a lot of adjudicating here, there, and everywhere. I eventually became a secretary of Black Dyke, which I did three of almost four years there. Thoroughly enjoyed it with uh, Nicholas Childs and the rest of the band. At the moment, I'm doing a lot of orchestral trumpet playing. From what you've just told me there, you've obviously got a very strong link going back to when you were, well, a young man yeah. with Black Dyke all the yeah. way through up until the present day, really. So how did you come about getting interested in the history of the band and then obviously this leading into you writing your book? Well, I think if you've ever, I'm not sure, Alan, have you ever been to the band room itself? I have, yes. Right, okay, being upstairs to the, what is the Heritage Centre now, yeah. that's a remake of the old band room. In fact, the old band room, uh, which is like the upstairs of the current band, was demolished in 1978. There was 
uh, quite a lot of structural problems with the building itself. Remember, it's, it had been there well before 1853. And as far as I remember, it was a coach house for um, John Foster's house, which was next door, a prospect house. Uh, so in 78, it was discovered there was lots of structural problems. It was completely demolished and it was rebuilt exactly the same. It was in the same 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 stone um the timbers were exactly the same inside so then the the specification of the rooms were exactly the same as well um but apart from that i walked when my when i first walked into the band room in 1969 there were all these pictures on the wall of all the old bandmasters phineas bauer um and, and many many more um colonel jaeger and they were all there and uh, there was records of the band winning contests even going back to the um, registration of the 1860 crystal palace with all the names and all the sort of work that these people did the employment that they did in the in foster's mill so for me it was a fascinating experience and I've, i've actually never forgotten that it's one of those things that i suppose like many things in life it stays with you and becomes an intense integral part of how you move your life forward and in fact if it wasn't due to me joining Black Dyke I wouldn't have experienced a lot of things that I've experienced now so I have a great respect for the band a great respect for the history and also a great respect for Foster's Mill which no longer operates unfortunately but many of the buildings are still there and a great respect for the people of Queensbury because they they supported the band from day one right up to the present day and the people of Queensbury are still exceptionally interested in the band and keep up with what they're doing so so there's, there's a fantastic history there uh, and obviously it dates back um, many 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 decades and all these different people who came and went have an important or had an important part to play in the history of the band and um, and therefore it's like many other organizations i suppose there's that sort of linear history of it but there's also the things that surround that like the people who played in the band the people who supported the band um, the obviously the people in the village of queensbury itself and all the different people who look up to the band because where I come from in West Yorkshire, Black Dyke was the band to play for. Not Brighouse, not Carlton Main, not Grimethorpe, but Black Dyke was the important band. And I suppose likewise in Lancashire, it could be Fairy Band or Foden's or other bands like that. But certainly every young person's dream at that point would be to play with Black Dyke. You know, especially if you go walking into some of the older band halls, it's kind of like you've got all the plaques on the walls, the pictures, photographs, cups, trophies, you name it. It's kind of like ghosts of the past are <laughs> on the walls uh, watching you and um, spurring you on a little bit. There's plenty of band mm-hmm. halls like that in the UK for sure, I think. Um, uh, th- yeah, that, that's that's quite right. And uh, in some respects, um, like like you go to the different contests, I mean, it'd been fascinated, to, fascinated for me to have played at Crystal Palace. That was never a possibility, of course. But I was, I was sort of happy enough to play 
at the Old Bellevue. I mean, that's that's where the, the contest started in 1853, at Bellevue. And you could, well, you were playing on that stage. You could actually envisage, ingrained in the floorboards and everything else in the building, all these people who had gone before you, you know, um, people like Phineas Bauer, as they Willie Heap and Cerise Jackson, all these famous names at that particular time. And it must have been a fascinating time for bandsmen because... I think I think we tend to look at band some band players as being professionals. Well, that's not unique, you know, because in the Victorian period, many 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 players were actually professional players, and they actually signed contracts for a period of one year or two years. Um, and if you look at the old copies of the Brass Band News, you'll see that many even many local bands would pay players. They would also obtain or offer jobs for them as well. And there was a fantastic amount of movement from one part of the country to another. In in fact, um, Black Dyke brought a soprano player from Stoke-on-Trent to play with the band and found found him a job, William Jasper. So it's it, it's actually a fascinating time. This this sort of Victorian period where bands started relatively in the eighteen thirties and grew to such an immense popularity by the time by eighteen eighty eighteen ninety. Um, and unfortunately, I think due to the First World War uh, and all the and also the onset of different forms of music making, particularly jazz and what came after that, the bands began to decline. The Black Dyke Band is probably the most famous or well-known band in the world. So let's just talk about a little bit about the origins. They're quite humble origins to start off with. You could just give us a little bit of an idea of how the band first started. Well, the band itself came from a, another band in Queensbury called the Queen's Head Band, because Queensbury used to be called Queen's Head. It was a staging point between Liverpool and Leeds, and the stagecoaches used to come up, and actually the stop-off point was the Old Dolphin and sometimes the Queen's Head, which was a pub as well, um, named after the village. Now, it was changed to Queensbury around about 1863, I, I think, by Royal Charter, but... There was a band in Queensbury originally called the Queen's Head Band. Now, that went through several difficulties. And by the early 1850s, the band was on its last legs. Now, because John Foster was interested in brass playing, he was a French horn player, and he played with other people in the village who, they were actually well-to-do people. A lot of people think that brass bands were were formed by working-class people. That's impossible, isn't it? When you think about that, in the 1830s, how many working people who worked in the mill had the time or the... And in, in fact, if you remember that many people couldn't actually read or write, they wouldn't be able to afford a brass instrument to play on, would they? So I think from my research, I found out that many of these early brass bands were personnel by middle class people or upper class people as well. They were the only ones who could actually afford to do this and had the time to do it. So uh, John Foster, seeing that this band was on its last legs and perhaps he found seen an opportunity to actually create something good for the village, he took over the Queen's Head Band and he signed all the players or some of the players because they brought players in 
and I, I think they were probably professional players as well. They brought them in to uh, to the mill to work at the mill, or or let's say they said they worked at the mill. Yeah. Um, now that's I mean we don't, we don't know, but there we are. And and he, he formed the band in around about eighteen fifty three, eighteen fifty four, and he bought a set of instruments from Hyams in Manchester, who were a fantastic instrument maker at the time. And set the band up with professional conductor, a resident conductor, rehearsal facilities and uniforms, uh, every, everything you could imagine. Because you got to remember that time that the, the mill, Black Dyke Mills, was actually in full operation at that time and, and growing rapidly until it reached really its height in the 1870s, 1880s, when it, when it uh, employed over 3,000 people. And it was a massive undertaking. John Foster owned most of the houses in Queensbury at the time. All the players were given houses, some very near the band room. The band room's in Sandbeds in Queensbury, right across from Victoria Hall, which were the where the band used to give concerts. Uh, and the band used to stay further down towards Bradford in, uh, in a place called Scarlet Heights. Uh, and most of the players actually lived there. So it this sort of Victorian benevolence, so the band reached great heights at that time. You touched on this a little bit earlier, but because of the registration forms for that first Crystal Palace competition, we actually know the professions, names, yeah, and also yeah, the instrumentation. Yeah. That's could just, right, yeah. Could you just tell us a little bit about sort of the makeup or instrumentation of the first contest for the band? Well, yeah, they, they played Cornopians, um, which was a forerunner of the Cornet. Initially, the some were pitched in A-flat. In fact, it's, the, the pictures in general were quite fluid, I believe, at that time. Um, and they played Cornets in A-flat. They played Ophiclides, Brass Clarinets. Uh, they, I think they had a euphonium as well and a couple of trombones. I think it was only about 12, 13, 14 players at that point in time. But uh, that, that was... That was quite common at that time that bands were actually made up of different numbers and and a whole host of different instruments as well. So we do we do know the makeup of the instruments themselves, and and as hell we know the names and the professions of these people. Can you imagine in modern contesting if we had to put our professions and what make and model of instrument we were going to play on? Well, it's it's actually not that long ago that you you you, you had to sort of put your name and address and and everything else on there. I can remember doing that as a as a young boy in the local band, uh, names and addresses and everything on the on the form. And I think if you go back before that, you'll find that there was there was a certain rule at one time that all the players for for bands had to live in the same area. So what you get is a list of bandsmen who had number one Smith Street, number two Smith Street, number three Smith Street, yeah. number four Smith Street. <laughs> so it was, uh, yeah, it, it's like a lot of rules in banding. Um, it, it's quite nonsensical. It, it never works, but there we are. But the fact that we have this document that shows that it's a great part of the history of the band that you can yeah. literally see every yeah. piece of information. It's just so interesting. And the keys of the yeah. instruments, the type of instruments, really yeah. useful. Yeah, I, I think it is really because um, in some ways the 
to me, we're, we're sort of almost living in a vacuum with Bandit at the moment because I think we were all glad about John Gladney's idea when he conducted the Meltham and Meltham Mills Band um, in the 1870s that he standardised the brass band format, um, same number of cornets, same number of horns, etc., etc. But in some ways, by doing that, we've lost that sort of way of making the same piece sound entirely different. Can you just imagine now if we, like if we go back in the old days where you had a, a second cornet and a second flugel, a third cornet and a third flugel, a, uh, another flugel that led the horns, four horns like they used to have, and perhaps the introduction of an Clyde now or a, pic, or a piccolo trumpet or, you know, what, what, why do we have to have the same format? It, it's almost like it's fixed in time. And because music publishers have, have had to sort of conform to this standardisation, then everybody is actually fixed like glue and, and can't make any changes. At that first Crystal Palace contest, you would have probably heard, you know, depending on how many bands competed, 50 different versions of the same yeah. piece because of yeah. the completely yeah. different instrumentation of every band. Yeah, yeah that's right. And, and do remember that in those days you were given a piece of music and the band masters at that time would rearrange that music for their own combination. So again, you've got slightly different things there. You're sort of judging different elements. But but the, the concept of adjudicating it is always the same. It's that holistic approach to listening from beginning to end and making a musical judgment. So the fact that it was a slightly different combination shouldn't really make any difference. But fascinating if we actually got to that stage where we could introduce different instruments. <laughs> No, no, no. I think I think we're too far down the road now, I'm afraid. Unless anyone wants to introduce an offer Clyde into the modern brass band contest. Well, there is a movement to actually begin playing these, and there are several people who are, were beginning to... I think, in fact, I think Wessex uh, manufacture um, an offer Clyde as well, and several other people have done so. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, um, in one of my previous episodes, there was a we were talking about the G trombone oh, and, and the use of the G trombone in the modern context. And yeah, so, yeah, go go yeah. have a listen to that episode, everyone. But some people did want to play on a G trombone, yeah, in like yeah. the nineties. <laughs> yeah, can you yeah, imagine? I mean, it, it is actually a unique sound, and and played correctly, it, it's a, it is a wonderful instrument and worth thinking about. I think I remember two specialists in my youth, Ken Sarsby, who played for Brighouse, and Derek Roebuck, who also played for Brighouse at one point. They were they were also all also superstars in the G trombone. And remember that for those who don't know, they used to have a handle on it so you could reach seventh position, and the and the expert G trombonist used to throw the handle, let go of it and catch it again as you got to the seventh position. It was a fascinating thing to watch and a wonderful thing to hear as well. Yeah, quite a unique instrument and yeah. obviously all of these, you know, like brass clarinets, cornopians, very yeah, distinct yeah. sounds, yeah. quite a little bit different to what our modern brass band sounds like today. Yeah, yeah, it's a pity we don't have recordings. but um, I know, yeah. if only. <laughs> yeah. um, that leads quite nicely when you were talking about the bandmasters arranging the set mm. test piece for their own mm. instrumentation. Yeah. So can we just talk a little bit about Frank Galloway and his arrangements of part books, which still exist in the Black Dyke archives? 
Yes, they do. Um, and they're fascinating historical documents, in fact, because it tells us a lot about the players at that time. And some of the some of the music is quite difficult. It is it is quite difficult. Um, and it and it tells us that their expertise then was probably just as equally as good as it is now. Um, the part books themselves. We're never quite sure about whether Frank Galloway actually wrote them or not, uh, because there is a story that he bought them from a military band in Manchester. Now, we can't sort of obviously we can't tell the truth of that, but they are scored for the instrumentation of the time, and all the part books are actually aligned to more or less the combination of the Crystal Palace band in the 1860s. Um, now, Black Dyke have recorded a lot of these on uh, on some heritage uh, CDs, which I think are still for sale. Actually, <laughs> I'll put the I'll put the link to the Black Dyke website. Don't worry, I couldn't possibly leave that part out. So yes, I will no. I will put links to all of the things that we mentioned today. But, but they are interesting, and uh, and the other interesting part about the part books is the fact that on the front they're printed as the Black Dyke Mills Military Band. Now, if you look at the photograph taken in the early 1860s, you'll see that the band actually looked very much like a military combination. And I think, again, if you remember back at that time, the uh, Britain was under the threat from the French again. And there was a great deal of volunteer regiments formed. Now, the Fosters were part of those volunteer regiments, and they were often officers, that's Colonel Foster and, and, and others. And they had their own military band as well. Now, I suspect, and I've tried to find the proof of this, and I can't, I suspect that Black Knight Mills Band was part of their regimental band at one time. And hence, the look of the uniforms at that point in time. So I think that there's, I'm not going to say the strong evidence, but my belief is that, that Fosters use the band for their military processions and everything else like that. Yeah, I was going to say that that part of the book does ring very true because a lot of existing brass bands in that mm. time period yeah. then mm. moved into a sort of volunteer role, That's right. and then yeah, yeah, and then yeah. and then proceeded to be become some became more wind bands, um, yeah, some yeah, stuck to the true yeah. brass roots, mm. and then they. Post this era, they went back yeah. into their. Um... They did, yeah. But once, once the uh, threat from France was was finished, the volunteer movement disappeared, and uh, I think the one reason that bands became volunteer bands was for one reason only: the money. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, <laughs> where opportunity knocks with us. Nothing changes. Nothing changes. <laughs> Let's. You, you touched there briefly on the uniform. So we yeah. in the modern era think of Black Dyke as the red, the black, and the gold. Yeah. What yeah. colour yeah. was? What do we know? What colour the first uniforms were for this kind of band? The first proper uniforms are green. With Quite a, different. With, yeah, with a, with, with a, a white belt across the front uh, and obviously a, a hat with all the plumes and things. In fact, there's um, the, there's an, uh, one of the hats in the band room, less the plume, of course, but in the, in the Heritage Centre, there's one of the hats there, which 
which dates back to that particular time. And uniforms are all based on military designs right up until the end of the 19th century when the government passed a law that only the forces at that time, most of the army, of course, could wear military-style uniforms. Brass bands had to slightly adapt their uniforms so they didn't look as though they were actually military uniforms at that time. So right from the early days, um, most brass bands used to model their uniforms uh, on, on military styles. And the the multitude of uniform manufacturers did the same. In fact, in Huddersfield alone, there were three massive uh, uniform manufacturers, James Beavers and Hodgson's, and, and I can't remember the, the third one there, but every town appeared Certainly the textile areas appear to have uniform manufacturers. So interesting. It kind of just shows you the sort of vast number of bands and other mm. organisations that were requiring that sort of... Yeah, well, the time. Every, every, every village, every town, every city seemed to have a band at that point in time. And so they, they were quite prolific there. I mean, some would, would would go for three or four years and then sort of disband. But but, but really, there were there was thousands of bands. And you've got to remember that a whole industry grew up from that. And not only instrument manufacturers, but uh, but uniform manufacturers, music stand manufacturers, music printing, valve oil makers, all these sort of things. People were selling lip balm to enable you to play for longer and longer and longer. Where do I get some of that? Well, I mean, I mean that the whole list is fascinating. Then you've got the growth of the, the professional players who advertised in the uh, in the band press, the uh, um, the professional conductors, people like Owen and Gladney, um, and and many many more. You know, the, the whole thing ballooned really towards the end of the nineteenth century and and became a whole industry itself. Uh, I mean, you've got examples of John Gladney going to America to do to work there, Alexander Owen, who went on several trips to Australia and, and around the world trips. And it, it's, it's difficult to believe now that they actually did that in that day and age when they were on sort of sailing ships rather than steamships, really. It's, uh, I mean, the whole the whole thing was sort of almost based on a, on a fully professional basis. Um, and, and certainly, I think if people went back in time now, they'd be absolutely fascinated with how ingrained banding was not just for the people who were playing in it and so to it, but the general public as well. Because you had examples of seven, eight thousand people attending the uh, the Bellevue contest and also you know thousands of people attending park jobs at that time. In one of the episodes we talked about Bessie's going over to Australia mm. doing world tours and you know yeah, there'd be yeah. literally thousands of people yeah. coming out yeah. to see them. Um, That's just right. That's on right. a scale we just can't quite comprehend now in the modern no. era, I don't think. No, no, there was there were stars. You know, it was uh, it was unbelievable, really. I mean, Fordens went to South Africa for a period at the early part of the 20th century. Yeah. Um, it's difficult to believe now. We think that this going abroad, is uh, bands going abroad, is, is a new thing from the 1970s. It uh, certainly isn't. Can we talk a little bit about some of the local rivalries that were going on between Black Dyke and others? And also, 
a little bit of correspondence between two individuals yeah, who yeah, went under yeah. aliases. So we had Trotimus Trotter That's the one, and yeah. Pondash. Could you just give us a little bit of a feeling about, you said that, you know, there were superstars, people were getting shipped yeah, in left, yeah, right and centre to play yeah, for the bands. Yeah, what yeah. was going on in terms of the rivalries just there? Well, uh, in some respects, we talk about brass band media now on Facebook and things, but but there was brass band media then, and the same sort of principles almost apply. Um, you've got this rivalry between two particular bands towards the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, and that was Black Dyke and Bessers of the Barn. Now, Bessers were conducted by Alex Owen, who used to conduct Black Dyke, so there was a little bit of sort of fierce rivalry there because uh, Owen had to resign from Black Diet because of a contradiction on a contest because he wanted to to play with Bessers on the same contest as Black Diet. Now there was there was some controversy about that and it it, it almost it, it really forced Alex Owen to resign. So there was a little bit of almost bad blood between the bands from a, from a fairly early stage. Now in the brand press itself a lot of people corresponded and wrote sort of all sorts of things which weren't always kind to other bands in actual fact but the thing about it then is that they used to write all these under pen names or pseudonyms now Bessers supporter and Stephen Hughes from Bessers is quite an expert in Bessers history and he's tried to find out who who this trotter trotter trotterbus is now the, the this 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 Bessers sort of fan signed himself as trotter or trotterus that may have been one or, or two people, I'm not sure. But he was always making snipe comments about Black Dyke and how they weren't as good as Bessers and everything else like that. Um, and, and the other one, the Black Dyke fan, was called John Wilson. Um, we know that because we found that out, that John Wilson, he was Pondash. Now, we talk about Pondashers as being supporters of Black Dyke, but, but Pondash was John Wilson's um, pen name. And so uh, after a period of time, everybody who supported John Wilson and these attacks on Bessers were then to call Pondashers. So that's where this, that's where the idea comes from. But but if you go back to the um, to the old copies of the Brass Band News, and they're available on Salford University's website, then it, it's, it's fascinating to read through all these uh, all these different sort of uh, attacks and re-attacks, uh, and, and, they, and they, they are said with tongue in cheek often. So they're not they're not sort of vile things like I get today. I must admit, but uh, it, it is quite interesting. It's kind of like pre-social media age. This is just kind of you know the just commenting in the you know in, in the paper and all this yeah, sort of thing. Yeah, it's very yeah. fun. It's more interesting actually. I'd, I'd advise anybody to try and find to to find these um, uh, because Roy Newsom actually scanned all these while he was uh, at Salford University, and they are available online. Fascinating reading. It really is fascinating reading. What's one of the most interesting discoveries you've made when you were writing the book and research and the history of the band i think it's the names of people because these these people are long forgotten aren't they really i mean one thing that i remember when i was first at black Dyke was that um we had a, a gentleman who was the caretaker of the band room he used to come and clean the band room um 
it, it was a filthy place, I have to say. Um, it's it steeped in history and everything, <laughs> but it was still, he used to come and clean the band room and make sure it was uh, okay for the rehearsals. And he used to keep the keys so if he were there early before anybody else, you could call it Herman, Herman Ambler's house and get him. Now, I think the interesting thing for me, because we, we always, we never really, I suppose, we never really thought of him as anybody else but just just a supporter of the band and I perhaps we didn't take him as serious we should have done it in many respects but on researching the book I found that he has a long history with his family uh is the Ambler family with Black Diet because they played his his, his ancestors played in Black Diet from the early days in fact, one interesting thing I found out was one of his relatives called Phineas Ambler, who was the first baritone player towards latter part about eighteen seventy onwards. He when he when he left the band, he became the resident conductor of the Corey band. And the same with the band's principal euphonium player from the 1880s. Once he, he left the band, John Bailey, he took over from Phineas Ambler as resident conductor of Corey as well. So it's thanks to Black Dyke that Corey band are where they are today. <laughs> That's gonna. I'm gonna get. I'm gonna get some direct messages. I'm sure. <laughs> it's just fascinating and the book goes into great detail about the you know the social history as well as the mm. musical history of the band yeah, yeah. where can people find out more about the book and yourself david well it's, it's available from kirkley's music in brighouse graham horsfield whose father played Ripiano next to me in black dyke he uh graham has some copies of the book there and um people can order from there it's a, it's, a, it's a brilliant read, honestly. <laughs> it's got some really great sort of photographs and also some like artifacts and mementos from the yeah. actual Black Dyke archives. Um, you can right. see all of yeah. the copies of the yeah. of the yeah. part books and all of the sort of yeah. trophies, yeah. etc. So yeah. really worth a little read. David, thank you so much for your time. It's been fascinating. We could talk for hours about Black Dyke sure Band. <laughs> um, but we're just going to stick to this tiny little Victorian section for now. Thank you again. Yeah, good to talk to you. If you like the podcast, please help it to grow by liking, sharing, rating and reviewing. You can also support the podcast by leaving a tip or buying a perk, including asking my next guest a question or getting a shout out via pod inbox. Links in the show notes. Podcast music is Mephistopheles, performed by the Illinois Brass Band. Mm-hmm.